Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. That is Psalm 119 verses 103 and 104. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us for this 14th bonus episode in our series, What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About Trauma and FASD with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. We are diving deep into important topics for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. Grab a notebook and a pen. You will want to take notes. I know I am. Uh, So feel free to pause the podcast right now so you can go grab something to write with and something to write on um, or listen through. And then if you really feel like, yeah, I'm going to want to take notes, you can listen a second time uh, and be ready to take notes then uh, because you are not going to want to miss a word. This is just such good content for us. Uh, Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown are bonus episodes that will be dropping on Fridays. Of course, with a podcast, you can listen any day of the week, any time of day or night, but just to let you know when you can be on the lookout for new content. If you are not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe and even leave a review. It really makes a huge impact. When you subscribe, it helps other adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers find this podcast. We believe it is a vital resource for our parenting journey, so please do take a moment to subscribe. Um, We've also got some vital resources for your parenting journey we want to let you know about. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And coming up in early 2023, I'll be offering two online workshops, a free 45-minute Lunch and Learn, which is an introduction to FASD. Uh, The next one will be on Wednesday, January 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And I'm offering a three-hour FASD deep dive. It is the neurobehavioral conditions, uh, including FASD, training, understanding, and application of the facets brain-based approach. Uh, It is going to be available on Saturday, January 21st at 10 a.m. It is online. There is a registration fee for this deep dive. 
but to register for either um, the Lunch and Learn, which is free, or um, the Facets class that I'm teaching, the three-hour Facets training, um, you have to register either way because we need to send you out the Zoom link. And you would go to our website, justicefororphansny.org backslash events to register. And we've included a link to the website in the show notes of, for this episode so that you can easily click on it and find out more about it. So now to our guest, Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center, also in St. Paul, for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and Editor-in-Chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also certified as a youth fire setting prevention intervention specialist, an anger resolution therapist, a thinking for a change facilitator, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorders trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. And all of that just means he is so qualified to educate us today on the topic that we're going to be talking about. So please welcome back Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared. Greetings, Sandra. How you doing? I'm doing great. So great to have you back. We took a, a little break uh, with my trip to Denver to visit my grandson and then our fundraising banquet. Things have been pretty crazy here, but I'm thrilled to have you back. Um, this is our 14th episode together, believe it or not. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they are, like I've mentioned to you before, these episodes are very popular with our listeners. The, the knowledge and information you are providing so important for parents and caregivers. We're learning so much. So we just greatly appreciate your willingness to, to be on the show and, and share with us. Absolutely. Honored to do it. So thanks for allowing me to do it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And, um, you know, last episode, we talked about the brain tasks of organizing and planning and how trauma and FASD impacts those brain processes. Today, ooh, very interesting subject. We're going to take a close look at the impact of sugar uh, and consuming sugar, the impact that has on the brain and especially um, individuals with an FASD. So I know... I can relate to this myself. I have a sweet tooth and I love to have dessert and I always want something sweet. So Jared, would you describe um, what and how sugar affects the brain? And I assume you're going to also um, detail what it does to the body as well. Yeah. So before we get started, I always say this disclaimer, this is not medical advice or nutritional advice. I have a handful of certifications related to health and wellness and nutrition, but I'm not a licensed nutritionist. So talk to your nutritionist and I'm going to be coming at this from an angle of behavioral health. So behavioral health, really think of it as kind of the connection between our health and well-being and our behaviors and the mind, body and spirit connection. And if you study behavioral health, 
you're going to probably want to learn about the topics of stress and anxiety and depression and relationship conflict and grief and addiction and isolation, but also screen time behavior and sleep and our exercise habits and our eating habits. And in my experience, I'm a professor, so I come at this from a professor angle, trainer, consultant. I, I teach a lot of classes at the graduate level on behavioral health topics and trauma. And I'm starting to really dig deeper into all of this mind-body connection because the overwhelming majority of cases I've consulted on over the years, excessive sugar consumption is is right there i mean it, it's a it's an issue and people probably don't realize that excessive sugar consumption is a threat to our emotional health our physical health and when i talk about excessive sugar consumption i mean i've, I've seen i've consulted in cases where the person's downing two liters of pop a day i mean it's excessive. I mean, if they're eating the Western diet, processed foods all the time, they're the only place they ever eat is a gas station. That's where I'm coming from. I'm not talking about someone that has a candy bar here and there. That's, I mean, no big deal. But if that's what they really use to cope with stress, they don't have a lot of money. They're eating lots of energy dense, processed, fast food, all of these things. That's kind of where I'm coming from today. So again, sugar, excessive sugar consumption. Think of it as a threat to our emotional health, our brain health, our body health. I mean, there's all kinds of other things and we'll talk about that as well. But interestingly, in the era of COVID-19, there's actually been quite a few studies that have looked at how eating habits have changed among people in the United States and around the world. And needless to say, I think this is not going to be that of a big of a surprise, but obesity has gone up, fast food consumption has gone up, excessive sugar consumption has already been an issue, but it seems like people might be stress eating more. And why is that? Because just think of COVID, the stress related to it during the lockdowns, the worry, the fear, the uncertainty of people are glued to the screen all the time, looking at anxiety provoking news stations, um, people lost jobs, they didn't have a lot of money. So they had to eat really cheap processed foods, going to the drive through a lot, going to the gas station a lot. I mean, that is some of the reasons why this issue probably is even more intense than it was before COVID. A lot of the cases I consult on, the clients are dealing with neurodevelopmental disorders, neurocognitive impairments, and serious and persistent mental health issues. So in a lot of these cases, the person's also dealt with a lot of life adversity, sometimes discrimination, marginalization, sometimes racism, lower socioeconomic status. These are all things you'd want to keep in the back of your mind when we're talking about these topics today. So think of when we think of like the basics of sugar, I mean, sugar in and of itself, we need sugar to, to live. Obviously you have to have like fruits and vegetables and things like that. But what I'm talking about today is more the added sugars. So think of the leading sources of added sugars in our diet in the United States. 
at the top of the list is sugar-sweetened beverages. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. Desserts, ice cream, pastries, cookies, sweet rolls. I mean, the list goes on and even just lots of breakfast cereals, yogurt. There's all, there's sugar everywhere. I mean, you, you can't, you can't get away from it. Fruit juice, chocolate milk, ketchup, barbecue sauce, canned fruits, canned soups, energy drinks, candy. I mean, sugar is everywhere and people don't realize you, you have a little ketchup that adds up. You have a glass of chocolate milk, that adds up. You have some granola cereal in the morning. You have some yogurt. Learning how to read the labels. And learning how to read the labels, there's something called nutritional literacy or health literacy. That's something you probably want to be aware of working with like a nutrition or dietitian. in, In this big world of sugar, people are shocked to learn how many studies have been written on sugar. How many studies have been written on sugar-sweetened beverages? How many books have been written on these topics? Now, what I will say, there's not much on FASD. There's a few articles on the FASD world that talk about nutrition. A little bit, they use sugar in there. And some of these studies have found that people with FASD may engage in more eating, problematic eating patterns. Anecdotally, I can say with out of doubt that I have just seen professionally and talking to caregivers and other professionals, I hear it all the time that my child or my adult who has FASD is seems to be, I hate, I don't know if I want to use the word addicted to sugar because there's controversy still. Is sugar a true addiction? I fall in the camp. Yes. Some people. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But they have a problematic relationship with sugar where there's cases I've consulted on where they are just pounding down that sugar and they're dealing now with obesity issues and it's throwing off their immune system. It's impacting their sleep and lots of things to think about. So Sandra, any, any thoughts so far? I can, I'll, I'll go a lot deeper into the weeds. Yeah, I mean, I know we're going to get to the FASD part because I would say I have, you know, out of my children that have an FASD, I have one in particular um, who just I would classify as addicted to sugar because he would rather drink a sugary beverage than eat food most of the time. He doesn't necessarily eat sugary foods um, as much as he does sugary beverages and then just, you know, Sometimes it depends on what he's very picky eater. So it's either sugary beverage unless he actually likes the food. But I think we're going to talk about sugary beverages more next week. So I don't want to go off on that tangent right now. But I do see where um, it's just like abnormally um, and ab- to me, like a co- comparatively, it's an abnormal amount of sugar craving. Um, you know, it's just not your typical. I've raised eight kids and this is just out of the ordinary. Um, so we'll get to that a little bit more, but I do, I do, I know you're going to take us a little bit deeper into the weeds to talk about, you know, the impact that the sugar, um, a high sugar diet has on the brain. So I'm, I'm really interested, probably a little bit scared and nervous because sugar is, you know, I, I have a sweet tooth and I like to have, uh, but I, you know, I like to have my sweets, but if I start, I can't stop. It's like once you kind of open that door and you have one little sweet thing, your body just keeps wanting more of that sweet, sweet, you know, sugary stuff. So I'm sure you'll get into that as well. But 
um, anxious to learn what you have to say about this. Well, th- I mean, excessive amounts of sugar on the brain can have like a drug-like effect. So thinking when you just look at like drug and alcohol use, binging behaviors, you, you see patterns with binging behaviors in some people where they just eat and eat and eat and drink and drink and drink sugar related products. When they don't get it, is there a strong craving? Is there irritability? Is there almost like a withdrawal kind of feeling? I think I've mentioned this in other podcasts we've done. My wife and I tried going off sugar, I don't know, like a couple of years ago. And I, without a doubt, had physiological reactions. I felt like it was just irritable. And once I got through that, things were great. So just, just thinking about the binging, the craving, the tolerance, like does someone start out having a small amount of sugar and now their tolerance goes up and they continue to need no, more and more and more and more and stuff. So think about that. When we think of this topic today too, when we're thinking of like added sugars, I would say that would really fall under the umbrella of ultra processed foods. So ultra processed food, sugar, sweet beverages, ice cream, savory treats, processed meats, going going through the the fast food joint. These are good tasting foods. They're 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 easy to consume. They're ready to consume. They're low cost. And after let, let's say we're talking about anxiety. I see this a lot with people with anxiety that I've worked with over the years. They may crave a lot of this stuff. They're not understanding the connection. Their anxiety goes up and up. So they crave more of this food, makes their anxiety go down for a little little bit of time, and then it comes rushing back. So then they go back for more and more and more, and it's kind of a vicious cycle. So when we think of like ultra-processed foods, these are going to be typically packaged and marketed intensely. The packaging a lot of times is going to look fun and enjoyable. Hey, we're having a good time. And a lot of these ultra processed foods obviously are going to contain all kinds of like added colors and flavorings and emulsifiers. And they're typically going to have lower nutritional value. So they're probably loaded with high energy density and high content of like saturated trans fats and lots of added sugars because you add all the sugar why do you do it? Because it tastes good. And then you want more. And typically these kinds of foods are lower in like potassium and zinc and fiber and protein and magnesium and vitamin A and C and D and E, the list goes on and on and on. So in this world of kind of nutrition, some articles, you'll, you'll find the topic of food addiction that comes up. So food addiction can be, it's it's a controversial topic still, but typically, let's say if someone had like a true food addiction, it's typically, they're going to be more addicted to high fat, high sugary foods. It could be having higher intakes of pastas and sweets and white bread and French fries and ice cream and chocolate and sugar sweetened beverages and all those things. So Part of that is going to be part of a poor quality diet, which are typically diets that are more processed foods, fast food, the gas station food, the sugar sweetened beverages, foods that are just loaded with salt 
and sugars and typically diets that have a lot lower intake of vegetables and whole grains and nuts and fresh fruits. And when you hear, when you study these topics, I don't know if you've ever heard of this topic, the Western diet, there's actually just a multitude of articles that have been published on the Western diet. The Western diet, think of it as kind of like a, a an eating pattern, eating behaviors where the person is consuming, again, fast foods, going to restaurants where the food probably tastes delicious, but it's not that good for you. It's loaded with fats and salts and sugars. And interestingly, people that rely on a Western diet, it's been linked to having more gut microbiota problems. So basically gut dysbiosis, more problems with the digestive health system. So you you hear me talk a lot about the, the gut-brain health access. Lots of studies that have talked about relying, someone that has mainly a Western diet kind of style of eating, they might have more digestive health problems. It's also been linked to having higher levels of obesity, diabetes, certain types of allergies, depression, metabolic issues, neuropsychiatric impairments. The list goes on and on and on. From a prenatal lens, there's actually been a good handful of studies that have looked at mothers pregnant and she's consuming a very high amount of sugar or consuming sugar sweetened beverages during pregnancy. So there's actually good handful of studies that look at prenatal sugar sweetened beverage exposure. Still limited, but some of these studies have shown that it can contribute to poor birth outcomes for that developing child. Now, what happens if there was prenatal malnutrition? Interestingly, too, where maybe mom isn't getting good prenatal care, isn't eating healthy, maybe is relying on foods where there's very few vitamins in there, and there's maybe some prenatal malnutrition. A couple studies have looked at this within the context of that developing child, maybe being more prone to developing kind of addictive behaviors later in life. A lot, a lot of fascinating kind of scary research around that. And if we just look at excessive consumption of sugar in general, plenty of studies have looked at this within the context of obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. It's been shown to alter brain and behavioral functioning, and it could be a factor in having more self-regulation issues around food intake. So it's really fascinating, and it's really I think it's something that all helping professions, all caregivers should learn about and do it in conjunction with your healthcare providers and maybe consult with a nutritionist on these things because it is definitely something that's been researched very heavily. You and I have talked about the HPA axis at times, the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis. There are some studies that show that excessive sugar intake may have an adverse impact on the HPA access. Interestingly too, diets that have are just loaded with sugar, that could be a factor in more oxidative stress in the body. 
So oxidative stress, think of it as like kind of an imbalance between like free radicals and antioxidants in your body, where if people are dealing with high levels of oxidative stress, this can really lead to cell and tissue damage, to name a few. And it may play a role in the aging process where it could increase aging for some people, which is basically allostatic load. And it's also been shown oxidative stress may be a factor in a number of different kind of pathological, physiological conditions in the body. So really fascinating stuff. Before I talk about this within the context of trauma and, and toxic stress, um, any thoughts, Sandra? Um, gosh, so many thoughts are running through my mind. Um, are, will you be kind of breaking down you know, what happens in an individual, like from the, from a brain perspective, what happens when there are, when there is an excessive high sugar diet, um, you know, how, how that affects the brain? Well, okay. So there's a lot of like biochemical processes at play here. So someone has a high, high sugar diet, what can happen over the long haul that can impact glucose functioning, it can impact insulin functioning. When insulin's off, when glucose is too high in the body, that can contribute to the oxidated stress, which then can wreak havoc on the whole body. And that can increase inflammation in our body. It may increase obesity. It can have a really negative impact on cognitive functioning, mental health functioning. And all of these things can throw off our gut microbiome, which if our gut microbiome is off, that can negatively impact the gut brain health access and the communication between the gut and the brain can be off and it can throw up our hormones or endocrine system. So lots of different things. I mean, there's way more than that going on, but that's kind of a, a high level overview. And what happens too, let's say we're dealing with lots of inflammation, oxidated stress, it's having an impact on our gut. Our sleep is often off. If our sleep is off, all of these things can be worse and worse over, over time. So those are just different things you'd want to consider. Now, if you throw toxic stress into the equation or trauma, for some people that are dealing with high levels of stress or and or childhood trauma, some of the literature has shown that some people may cope with those feelings by turning to foods that are high in sugar. And over the long haul, chronic consumption of sugar may contribute to more metabolic dysfunction, which just being aware of how this can have an adverse outcome on metabolic health. And if we're looking at this through the ACEs literature too, there's several studies that look at adverse childhood experiences and how that may contribute to more eating-related problems, more oxidated stress as well in the body. And interestingly, if you dig deep in the ACEs literature, there are some studies that, that indicate that looking at it through a plant-based dietary intake diet and working with a nutritionist may be one factor of many that can help offset early childhood trauma. By no means am I saying it's going to cure it, but it is a factor we want to take into account because if someone goes through life and is dealing with a lot of untreated trauma, what happens? They may not eat healthy. 
They may not sleep well. They may have more addictive tendencies. They may have more mental health problems. And over a long period of time, this can wreak havoc on their mind and body, their learning, their social health. So tackling this from a multidisciplinary approach is imperative. And that's why I keep saying the same thing, maybe consulting with a nutritionist, a functional medicine specialist, they could play a real vital role in the overall health and wellness of someone. In addition to having a therapist, psychiatrist, speech language pathology, sensory processing, it's really kind of that team approach. Mm. And then, so I assume excessive sugar intake is even more damaging to the brains and bodies of individuals who are prenatally exposed to alcohol. So is that true? And if so, why is that? I don't know, to be honest with you, because there's not studies that I'm aware of that have looked at that, but not studies. There, there are a few studies that have shown that people with FASD may be more likely to have poor dietary patterns and habits. But anecdotally, I hear from plenty of people that when my child is not taking care of themselves by eating terribly on the screen all day long, not sleeping well, their behavior problems go up. They ruminate more. They're more depressed. They're more irritable. They're more aggressive. I hear this all the time anecdotally, but I can't say with certainty, does excessive sugar consumption impact the brain more for someone who has FASD compared to a child who doesn't? But I can say that the sugar literature points to the fact that excessive sugar consumption can have a real negative impact on child health and wellness, regardless of diagnosis. So it's tough to know. But what another thing to consider too, there's actually several studies that have looked at sugar within the context of autism. I'm actually putting together a training proposal for a conference coming up on autism and excessive consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. There's a good handful of studies that have looked at that topic as well. So we got to look to, toward other literature, autism, ADHD, and there is articles in, in that literature base that point to the fact that people with those kind of disorders may be more likely to consume higher amounts of sugar compared to people without those disorders. So we definitely need more research in the world of FASD. But I think we can pull from those other studies too to get a, a snapshot of what we think might be there, but we don't know a certain. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I don't even play one on TV or this podcast, but just as a mom, you know, understanding everything that you're saying overall for anyone, um, just the, 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 the terrible effect that sugar has overall on our brains and bodies um, and all of our systems. And to me, you know, an individual who's already compromised because of the prenatal exposure, it makes sense that this would only excessive sugar would only exacerbate all of those problems. Um, and, and since there's not the studies specifically on individuals prenatally exposed, looking at those studies, you know, when it comes to those with who have autism and, and ADHD will be helpful to kind of clue us in that that's probably something that we're looking at as well. Um, I can only, I can only imagine. Um, but so 
and you might not even know this, but I'm just curious because, you know, somebody told me, somebody else who's not a professional, just another fellow mom, you know, in conversation talking about um, our kiddos with an FASD. Um, and it just seems like, you know, they have such a craving for sugar and sugary beverages. You know, one of my boys would prefer to drink a sugary beverage over eating food. Um, so is there somehow being prenatally exposed to alcohol caught, you know, does that sort of predispose one to a sugar addiction? We, I just wouldn't feel comfortable saying either way. Anecdotally, I, I hear it again. I see it a lot. But we know that a significantly higher number of people with FASD end up having addictive tendencies with maybe other substances compared to the general population that's supported in the literature. We know that everyone with FASD has executive functioning impairments. So when someone has executive functioning impairments, they're more likely to be impulsive, which impulsivity is a factor for just not living a healthy lifestyle. We know that most people with FASD don't sleep well. We know that most people, unfortunately, with FASD have trauma histories and attachment problems on top of it, and they have abstract reasoning, so they have a hard time connecting the dots. These are all factors I think we can't go wrong by understanding. If you look at the general sugar literature as well and take out FASD, lower socioeconomic status has been linked to higher consumptions of sugar, which makes sense to me because if you don't have a lot of money, you probably are more likely to buy cheaper quality food. And sometimes cheaper quality food is loaded with sugar and sodium. There's some literature in the bullying victimization world where kids who were victimized as a result of bullying might have more poor dietary habits. Again, this is an FASD specific. You look at the sleep literature, Plenty of studies have looked at how sleep problems can be exacerbated by excessive sugar intake. The reason for that is sugar can stimulate our appetites and cravings and it can throw off our blood sugar levels. And then we might have more inflammation. It can negatively impact our gut health. And interestingly, you have excessive sugar consumption and sleep problems together that may be a recipe for increases in impaired decision-making and even higher levels of impulsivity. Just having an ultra-processed food diet really is linked to having higher levels of depression and anxiety. So if people have a lot of depression and anxiety, sometimes they get in that vicious cycle that I need more sugar, I need, I crave the sugar and it helps them get out of that feeling for a short period of time and then they crash again and then they want more. So these are things I think that we can look at and help get a snapshot of maybe what's happening in the FASD brain. But again, we don't know with certainty. If you look at some of the problematic behavior literature, there's some studies that have shown that kids that have higher consumptions of salty and sugary foods might be more likely to have externalizing behavioral problems. These are problems that the caregiver is going to see a lot easier in the child. Externalizing is the child 
being more loud, boisterous, rule-following problems, screaming, yelling, throwing things, defiant kinds of behavior. So negative emotions have been studied within the context of children and sugar intake. And there are some studies that show that children with high levels of sugar intake might be more likely to have more negative emotions as well. There's a case I consulted on a while back that comes to mind. The person had a neurodevelopmental disorder and had profound self-regulation deficits. This person absolutely, without a doubt, consumed extreme amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages, seemed to be addicted to the technology and the internet and the screen. This person had a real hard time with putting on the brakes and not overeating. So this person was dealing with obesity issues. And this person really had a hard time managing energy and they didn't handle boredom well. So a lot of these things were really rooted in self-regulation kinds of issues as well. And there are a few studies that have looked at sugar overconsumption and how it can cause or contribute to more compulsive or repetitive types of behaviors. And these behaviors in this particular study were indicative or predictive of a development of like a substance use disorder later on in life. And if you look at some of the hyperactivity or inattentive literature, there's some evidence, again, it could it's mixed depending on the study, that uh, children with higher levels of sugar consumption might be more likely to be dealing with some hyperactivity or inattentiveness or impulse kinds of issues as well. So there's a lot to think about. I, I gave a talk, I think a couple of weeks ago, a different podcast where I looked at what we're talking about today through a criminal justice lens. And I'll, I'll just say just a few things about that because it's really interesting and fascinating if anyone's working in the criminal justice system. There's one study I'm aware of that if they looked at this particular group of people and domestic violence was associated with higher intake of sugar-sweetened beverages and snacks. There's been a good handful of studies that have looked at the, these topics within the context of incarcerated populations. So fascinating topic. And a couple studies have actually looked at among offender populations, when they reduced the sugar intake, problematic behaviors went down. It's hard to generalize these studies to the entire population, but at least according to these samples, it showed to bring down problematic behavior. And another topic that we really didn't talk about, but we should, is food insecurity. What happens if the child grew up and they didn't have access to food or it was really inconsistent where they didn't know that where their next meal was coming from because of poverty, homelessness, malnutrition? Food insecurity has been associated with an increase in diabetes, hypertension, dental problems, strokes, certain kinds of cancers, arthritis, asthma, kidney problems, depression. And I'm not I don't think these studies are indicating like if a child had food insecurity for a short period of time, they're more likely to grow up and have all these problems. This is probably more of a pervasive problem over a number of years because again, if a child had malnutrition in utero, and now they're born into a home where 
there's just not a lot of food. They're dealing with poverty. They're dealing with homelessness. This is a critical stage of development. I don't know if you've heard of the first 100 years of life research. The first 100 years of life are so critical for nutrition, attachment, prenatal care, early postnatal care. And if the child has had a lot of nutritional deficits, that can absolutely impact brain development, to name a few. And interestingly, too, food insecurity has also been associated with more high-risk coping strategies later on in life. So there might be an increased likelihood that that person turns to other kinds of addictive behaviors later on in life, to name a few. So food insecurity, huge topic too. It's a sad topic. It's a scary topic, but it's definitely something we need to be aware of. Yeah, it makes it makes me think of children who come in, for example, into, um, you know, in the foster care system, who who most likely had food insecurity. Um, and even, you know, my, four of my children came from an overseas orphanage where that was definitely the case. So, um, you know, the, the, the parents listening to this podcast would be very familiar with food insecurity and, and, and those kinds of things. This is all, um, all of this information is so eye-opening and not just if we are thinking about our children, but ourselves and our own health. Um, so, so very important. Um, you know, and I, I think of my son who's 19. I keep mentioning him. He, he, he drives, he buys most of his own, um, he buys all of his own sugary stuff because I don't, I don't provide it in the house. I never really have a whole lot. You know, we have the occasional thing, but I don't buy soda. I don't buy juice. Um, uh, but you know, him being out outside the home, he comes home with big fountain cups, you know, that, that he stops and gets these sugary beverages and, and soda and he likes sugary coffee beverages. Um, but it's easier to manage when they're little, you know, when you have little children, you can kind of control their diet and their intake a little bit with older kids. It's harder because they're making those decisions on their own and they're not making the best decisions. Um, so, so Jared, what can parents and caregivers do to help curb the sugar craving, um, you know, you know, prevent it from becoming excessive amounts of sugar um, in our children's diets. Talk to your healthcare provider, work with the nutritionist. Again, anything I share today is just general education. Don't take it and use it. You, Hopefully it's encouraging people to learn about these topics and then talk to your healthcare provider. But what you said, Sandra, before you asked that question, it reminds me of blood sugar regulation, everything I've learned about all these topics and with just mental health in general, one of the best things we can do to manage our emotions and our mental health is managing blood sugar levels. And if you look at the research in the United States, very, very, very high percentage of people have blood sugar dysregulation. A lot of cases, again, they spike blood sugar, maybe they're pounding down the sodas and they spike it up and then it crashes. There's a lot of things that can cause blood sugar dysregulation. Sleep being off, disruptions in routine, skipping a meal, that can throw off our blood sugars, lack of exercise, binge eating, tons and tons of stress. So if someone deals with like high levels of unstable blood sugar levels, that's been linked to having more problems with concentration and focus. And it's been linked to having higher levels of anxiety. 
not having as much resilience. So we get overwhelmed easier. And yet, interestingly, blood sugar dysregulation has also been linked again to having more digestive health problems, and it has a profound impact on our immune system. So couple questions, general questions I would say to consider in the back of our minds when we're just looking through a health and wellness lens. Are you or your family thriving? Are you just maintaining the status quo? Or are you regressing and going backwards? These are good just questions to consider. And another reason maybe why it's important to talk to a nutritionist about these things. When we think of just our overall general well-being through a behavioral health lens, anything we can do to support and enhance self-esteem and our self-worth and self-efficacy, we might be more likely to make better health decisions. Optimism can help overall well-being. So if we go through life and really just see the future as very problematic and nothing's ever going right and we're always negative that can have a profound impact on our physical and emotional health so really infusing like optimistic thinking gratitude having a better self-concept and learning better self-control are wonderful things we can do just to live a healthier lifestyle in general when you think of self-control, self-regulation, we talk a lot about that in the series, Sandra. For some people, lack of self-control can mean you go to the buffet and instead of having one plate, you have six plates. That is low self-control. Someone who knows they have to get up the next morning for work and they decide to stay up all night gaming, that's low self-control. People that don't know how to manage their money and spend their money right away and now have no more money left over to pay the rest of their bills, that's partially related to lower levels of self-regulation, self-control. Excessive sugar consumption, tobacco use, drug and alcohol problems, problematic driving habits, having very poor work-life balance. These are all things that are indicative of maybe some self-control issues, to name a few. I would say, too, when we think of interventions, it's a multidisciplinary approach. Empowerment. We want to empower ourselves and others. Improving our access to resources, so getting connected to healthcare providers or professionals that have the competency and expertise in these areas to really help the family or the individual develop a plan and thrive. Addressing secondary problem areas is sometimes suggested. So if we know the person's dealing with anxiety or depression or sleep issues or pain issues, treat all the secondary things you know what's going on. That can make a huge difference. Learning how to manage our distress or emotional distress. So learning how to process our emotions, name our emotions, label them, helping emotions not be afraid and not suppressing our emotions and being aware of that topic of alexithymia that we've talked about a few times too in the series. Maybe it's working with a counselor. Maybe it's working with an exercise specialist. Maybe it's going to a sleep specialist. Maybe it's helping someone stay medication compliant where they struggle with taking their meds as prescribed. Maybe it's helping someone learn how to monitor their blood sugar levels. Maybe it's working with, again, a healthcare specialist who, who knows those topics. 
I, I gave a talk recently on neurocounseling. I'm a huge fan of neurocounseling research. And in the neurocounseling literature, you'll hear something called therapeutic lifestyle changes. This is something you might work with a counselor on where therapeutic lifestyle changes are just really rooted in exercise and diet, nutrition, getting out in nature more, being around green space and blue space, enhancing your relationships, learning how to manage your stress and relax more, getting connected to a religious or a spiritual kind of group, or obtaining a volunteer job. These are all just basic things to consider. And living a healthy life is so important. And one component of that is, again, maybe cutting down on the sugar, but doing that only in conjunction with your healthcare provider, getting better sleep, staying hydrated, exercising, managing your stress, going to the dentist, taking care of your gut health. These are just basic common sense things that a lot of us don't think about, but we need reminders. It's hard to implement these things sometimes because so many people are go, 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 go and work all the time and in school and just learning how to have balance, taking a step back and breathing and just slowing down a little bit and joining a support group. Lots of things to consider. Mm. Yeah, I love all of that. And it made me think when you were talking about the blood sugar regulation and making sure that there's, um, you know, eating. Um, one of the things I remember learning when it came to um, the trauma training that I got through uh, Dr. Karen Purvis, her book, The Connected Child and the whole trust-based relational intervention approach is is making sure that our children, so our kids that come in who have trauma histories, um, making sure that every two hours they have a healthy snack and they have water. They have access to those things all the time um, because, you know, it's my understanding that being able to, to do that, um, you know, it helps with the blood sugar level. It helps them to know that they're going to have, they're hydrated, they're going to have food if there was food insecurity. Um, and it, it just helps with behavior overall. So, um, a lot of what you were listing made me think of, of just that one thing. And I remember implementing that with our youngest when we were learning about trauma um, and how that did make a huge difference that they could have access, he could have access to a healthy snack and water, uh, like water all the time, but a healthy snack, making sure every two hours between meals that he had that. Um, it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it does too. And Chronic low dehydration is a huge topic that a lot of studies have shown that mild dehydration has a profound impact on our cognitive brain health, amongst other things, too. Absolutely. Wow. Again, Jared, you've provided so much valuable information, so much for us to um, really process through things to think about, um, you know, and again, you know, you're, I know we're not diagnosing anybody. We're not handing out medical advice. But if any of this resonates with our listeners, absolutely contact your healthcare professional, contact a nutritionist, get some professional help with this to help with, with yourself and with our kids. Um, very, very important. I know, Jared, we always, when we wrap up, I always ask you to narrow it down to the top three <laughs> for parents and caregivers. So they can, you know, walk away with, you know, three easy takeaways. Um, and many of us have kids that battle those unhealthy sugar cravings, um, unhealthy amount of uh, sugar consumption. So what should be the top three? Like, what are three easy things we can do today to help our kids who may be, you know, having this problem with sugar? 
Number one, consult with a healthcare provider nutritionist. Number two, if sleep is not, it's not, if someone's not dealing with healthy sleep patterns, do everything you can to get sleep under control. That's foundation to health and wellness, in my opinion. And number three, which I wish you asked, can we do have 20 <laughs> suggestions? I'll stop at three. Number three, at least what I see anecdotally, reduce screen time exposure. Mm. There's studies that show that people that are on the screen for hours and hours a day, they're more likely to consume foods that might not be good for them and they live a sedentary lifestyle and that can increase inflammation in the body. It can impact sleep and it can just wreak havoc on our brain health, our social health, our learning, everything. So those would be three good starting points. Yeah. And I know if I could, if I had to add three to that, I probably would include, you know, uh, healthy diet, right? Healthy, like the fruits and vegetables and the protein, um, less sugar, more um, nutritionally dense foods, I would recommend. Um, The exercise piece is being less sedentary. So you're not sitting around eating. um, And I'm not sure what I would say the third. Oh, less, less processed food, less, less, Fast food um, are always good places to start, but um, good things. And they may be things we sort of kind of just know already, but to really focus on how we could improve the health and well-being of our children um, by by paying attention to this topic of sugar, um, extremely important uh, for sure. So Dr. Brown, thank you yet again for unpacking another important topic for us. And I'm looking forward to our next episode where we're going to look deeper into the impact of sugar as in regards to the negative effects of sugary beverages. And I know we think we automatically think about soda, right? But I'm suspecting all of those fancy coffee drinks that we all like may be included in that list as well. Um, so we're amongst 10 others, probably yeah. so many things that fall into that umbrella. So I think this will be a good part too follow up to this. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic and scary too. And I scary. Think. Yes. And very scary. Cause I see it in myself. I see it even, I never noticed my husband has a sweet tooth, but he, um, I've been noticing the older he's gotten, the more he's kind of going after sugary things that I never really noticed him going after before. And one of my sons very much so my son with FASD. So, um, definitely something that we really do need to be paying attention to. So we're going to take another look at it next week as well. So Jared, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us again today. Thank you. And you're welcome, my friend. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this special series with Dr. Jared Brown. It's so important for us to understand today's topic, um, talking about sugar, um, I know just when I we, we, we paused and we're chatting about sugary beverages and where we're going to take this episode next week um, or take the, the, the episode that we're going to do next week. So you're not going to want to miss that. Um, so make sure you join us next week when we talk about sugary beverages um, and how that adversely affects our brains and bodies, especially those of our kids who are prenatally exposed to alcohol, who have childhood trauma. Um, sugary beverages poured on top of that. Um, 
an accelerant to the behaviors and the challenges that we are already facing on a daily basis. So be sure to check that next episode out. Remember our regular shows drop on Mondays. Be sure to watch um, for those along with these bonus episodes. If you enjoy this show, be sure to let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know about it so they can listen and be encouraged and equipped too. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We offer resources and support to parents and caregivers struggling along this journey. So be sure to check out our website, justicefororphansny.org, where you can learn more about our free lunch and learn workshop, which is an introduction to FASD and the upcoming January um, three-hour facets workshop um, where we take a close look at the neurobehavioral model. So make sure that you check those out. And if you would like to grab a copy of my family's kinship and Ukrainian adoption story in my award-winning book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, uh, you can grab a signed copy on my website, sandraflack.com, or you can grab it wherever you buy your books. Um, So I hope you do that. And I'd also like to give a shout out to our business sponsors, Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boudry Construction, National Bank of Kuksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. These businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us do what we do. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans as well as my personal page at Sandra Flack. I'm grateful that you have spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.